Downloads of the show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey kids, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, June 5th, 2018. And it's been a quiet week around here, which quiet is not always bad. Sometimes it's good for things to be stable and chill and stuff so you can figure out which way you want to walk. This way or that way? Hmm, maybe like this song is going to tell you. See you in a little bit.
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Run DMC with Walk This Way, a collaboration with Aerosmith. And it's from Run DMC's Raising Hell album back in 1986. And I don't know if any of you's out there old enough to remember the video for the song. It had a lot of play on MTV. And it was pretty cool. It was like Aerosmith was on one side playing and Run DMC was mixing on the other and a wall was broken through and they both ended up on stage. And it was pretty cool because that was that was a, a singular moment in, in music history. In the mid-1980s, there wasn't all that much collaboration going on between genres. And for Run DMC and Aerosmith, two totally disparate and... Um, opposite of most people thought groups to get together to do a song that was pretty kicking it that was doing some good stuff son anyway um we're going to get to our episode for this week we have a fantastic guest artist for you and we're doing a little bit of collaboration there as well our guest artist this week asked my help in picking songs for this episode because he just couldn't narrow it down. So he gave me a couple of genres. He let me know a couple of songs that were important to him and some people that he loved. So we picked and let's see how it goes. We're going to wing it. Here's the first song.
Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Chicago R&B Soul Band, premier Chicago R&B Soul Band, The Five Stair Steps, with Ooh Child, which was a great single in 1970. Yeah, I should have wikied it. Was it number one? May have been, may have been the top ten, but it was number one in my mind. I remember that song from my childhood. Oh my God, that was totally one of my favorite songs. Such a message of hope for a very turbulent time to grow up in. And it's so ironic that when I was a kid was the the period of basically the most unrest that this country had in that century. Social unrest. I'm not talking about like World War II and stuff like that. Like just social internal unrest. And it seems like nothing's changed and it's all about to like blow up all over again. But hopefully not. We'll see. Maybe things will get easier. (laughs) Yes, maybe they will. And on that note, guess what, kids? Now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa. Everybody, welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. Woohoo! So today I'm sitting across the table from one of my most favorite performers, and he don't know what's going to hit him. Ah, one of my favorite humans in the whole world. Please welcome to Fish Out of Agua, the amazing, the illustrious, and the really good-looking. Mike Brown. Hey. Oh, that Mike Brown. Oh, that Mike Brown. Hey, at yo Mike Brown on all your social platforms. Yeah, <laughs> I, just I know. myself early, just, you know, hey. I, no, I really, lo- what's one of the things I really love is that you're consistent. Yeah, consistency is key for everything. Yes. Gotta be consistent. Yes. I'm changing my uh, my website too to yomikebrown.com. I yeah. already own it, so don't try to steal it. Okay, I, already... I I got listen. I I got Michelle Carlo, okay. Michelle Shell. You know. Yeah, so you know. We don't need to compete. Yes. You, what... Even the listeners, I don't want them to compete if they're yeah. listening. No, and like, there, oh, there, there is no competition okay. here Good. because Good. there's plenty of gigs for you. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of gigs for me. There's yes. plenty of gigs for us together, and neither yes. one of us is going to take what the other one is supposed to get. Uh, yeah. I, I really believe that. I believe that too. I, you know, it's it's weird because like I'll talk to other uh, comedians, especially about it, where. Um, like there was there was a thing that I had booked for Adult Swim, right? And mm-hmm. it was two other comics had went in for that role, and I got the role, and it was just like a quick kind of like special guest extra part. And then uh, one of the comics was like, "Oh, you took my thing," and I was like, "No, man, I didn't take your thing. Like that wasn't that wasn't for you. That was for me." 
And because that wasn't for you, you've gotten other opportunities because you didn't get that one. You know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah. It's like, like we, how could you take his thing unless you were both at the same audition? We were. And and, and you chloroformed him. Like you <laughs> like you put a handkerchief with yeah. like some chloroform yeah. and like knocked him out and put him in the corner and they yeah. thought he wasn't there. Then I could say Maybe. that you took his gig. Yeah. But if that didn't happen, I think you again, did you did not take the son's gig. No. And, no. And, and it's a thing of like because you know like in New York how hard it is to be. A an artist where it's mm -hmm. like everything kind of matters for yeah, us. Yeah, everything matters. Everything matters. It's crazy. Yeah, it's 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 nerve wracking. It's nerve wracking. All right, we'll we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get, get we'll it. get to all the nerve wracking in a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, I forgot to mention that uh, Mr. Oh That Mike Brown, Yo Mike Brown, is a stand up and a storyteller mm -hmm. and actor. And yeah. I'm going to tell he's he's going to tell us the other things that he does. Okay. But right okay. now, I I what well, I know Fish Out of Agua listeners want to know, dying to know. Um, and I asked this question of everybody when we first uh, opened up our chat: Where and when did we meet? And I'm thinking it's through Eric Vedder somehow. Yeah, it definitely was through He's Eric. He's the conduit. It, it, it Eric Vedder from uh, no, name, no Name, the No Name, name series. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, No Name. Uh, and I think I think this is when, when No Name was at the other location. It might have been at like 177th or 178th maybe. Oh, when, you mean at, at Word Up? At Word Up. At Word Up, yes. Yeah, Word Up, yes, the word, original The location. original Word Up bookstore was on 175th yeah. and Broadway. Yeah, I think it was there. Okay, so that's um, like about six, six yeah, years ago. Yeah, that's what I was like six years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking five or six years ago. Um, yeah, we met there, and um, and then I, I know we did we did a few shows. We did a few shows together there, and um, yeah, and we, I think you were one of the first people to tell me. And uh, shout out to Don Frazier too to be like, hey, you know, you could do storytelling. Too. Really? Yeah. I was. Oh, cool. Yeah, you and you and Don were the first two people to be like, hey, you know, you can do storytelling as well. Like, because I think I was like working out some materials and some jokes and I didn't have them formed yet so I was just like telling what happened and you were like hey you should do storytelling you should Give it, give it a, uh, wow. give it a check that out. Totally, so, that totally yeah. sounds like something I would say. Yeah. Well, um, I'm not the only native New Yorker sitting at this table right now. You are also, aren't you? Yeah, I am a native New Yorker, but I got to New York when I was three. Now, let me tell you this story. My mom and my dad, both both New Yorkers, my dad, uh, by way of Jamaica, came to Harlem and um, for high school, and my mom was born in the Bronx, uh, in the projects, whatever. They met in New York, had me in Boston, and moved back it's the weirdest thing. It is like the weirdest, weirdest thing. Were they teenagers still? Were they grown? Oh no, yeah, they were grown. They were grown. Uh, my dad, my dad, I think he was at a, uh, I think he was like MIT or some shit. And my Ooh, mom smart. Was, yeah, my mom was just like out there for whatever reason. And so they had me. And then um, they split up and my mom moved back to New York with my grandmother. And I was raised in Queens. Oh wow, what neighborhood in Queens? Um, Rosedale. Oh, that's yeah. is that kind of near Laurelton? Yeah, like that, yeah. like that part, like Eastern Queens. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's in um, yeah. There's so many things happening here, but it's uh, yeah. It's right, it's right by Laurelton, uh, Valley Stream, okay, or Long Island. So like when I grew up, my New York upbringing was around like my next door neighbors were uh was like a Jewish family across from me was like a Colombian family. It was me and this other black family on the block. We had it, it was a very diverse mixture of like uh ethnicities, incomes, uh, professions. All and this is the 90s, late 80s? This was, uh, this was the uh, early, mid-80s. Okay. Yeah, um, in, into the 90s. And I think, uh, I think in like the beginning of the 90s is when I moved in with my dad in Harlem. Oh, so like okay. my, my New York experience is like, okay, suburbs, Queens, Long Island-ish. Hollis is Harlem. near there. 
Yeah, Hollis, yeah. Run DMC. Run DMC. Yeah, they, came, they, they, they blew yeah. up in the mid-80s, yeah. early mid-80s. Yeah. Is anyone performance-oriented in your family? doesn't have to be professional. I mean, aspirations, like people that like doing it, but for whatever reason didn't do it. Mm, you know what? My, uh, my Aunt Sharon is an artist. Uh, she's a painter. And she also... Um, she also made like these shirts back, you know, back in like the 90s when it was like all this pro-black stuff and everyone be, would sell like pro-black clothes in the Harlem market. Like she would have clothes that she would sell and we would work the table sometimes. Um, my mom opened up a uh, African art store in Queens in Rosedale. It, it stayed open for about like four months. Aww. I mean, this was ahead of this was the head of like the whole wokeness curve. And it's like, <laughs> there's not a lot of black people who's gonna be in Rosedale trying to buy African art. You know what I mean? There's not even a lot of black people in Rosedale at that time. But it was a dope. It was a dope store. Um, and I think I think from that, it's like I knew I knew that I can kind of do anything. And the thing that I wanted to do was like be on TV and like I would watch all that and like all the all the like the, the shows on television. I'm like, oh, I can do that. I just didn't know how to do it. Um, what influenced you when you were young? Hmm. Like, like, who did you see on TV and you said, oh, I want to do that? Everybody? Everybody. I think comedy was the, f the first thing. I just loved comedy, loved the, uh, the ability to kind of make people laugh and, and I guess having that control, not control, but just like that, that performance of it. Mm. Um, I, did, I did acting at Harlem School of the Arts for a little bit. Oh, was, okay. So when you moved back with, you, when you moved with your dad. So yeah. um, how old were you when you left Queens moving with uh, your dad? I think I was like... 12, 13. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, so, so you went to like junior high school, high school in Manhattan? Yeah. I went okay. to the Frederick Douglass Academy. It was a public school, but they were very selective about who they let in. Mm, okay. So the school, which was uh, founded by uh, Dr. Lorraine Monroe, she wanted to compete with the private schools. She wanted to compete with the, uh, you know, Bronx Science and Brooklyn Tech and all these other schools, but we just didn't have that, like, those kind of programs. But what she did do was do uh, a lot of outreach. We took a two-week trip to Dartmouth University, and um, we learned, like, the Rossius method. And even there... What's that? It's, like, it's this method of, like, learning how to speak French where you sit in a room and it's, like, let's say 10, 10 12 kids and the teacher, and the teacher will ask you a question in French and will snap his fingers and point to your direction. So it's like, como tal And he snaps and points to you and then you have to answer and it keeps you very alert. So you're all in this semicircle just learning and speaking French. Wow. And um, so we would do that. And I, I remember then we would have to do like sketches from the book and I would always take the sketches and rewrite the sketches to make them comedy. And so we would perform these sketch comedies in French and it really blew Dartmouth away and they were like, um, we want you to come here, we'll pay for everything, you can do whatever you want, but you also have to do French. And um, I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to do French. And then my college advisor, I wish I could remember her name, but she told me, maybe you shouldn't go to Dartmouth because it's gonna be a shell shock for you, yada, 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 and so I turned him down. Wow, why yeah. does she think it was gonna be a shell shock for you? We, we, we know people that went to Yale and yeah. Harvard. But you, but you know that, I think I think when you're growing, growing up as a person of color in New York City, you, you, you get to meet people who went to Yale, NYU, and all these other things, but it's like, when you're going to school in Harlem and all year round are people of color, it's like, your school is just people of color, your life is mostly just people of color, mm -hmm. every, every, there's color everywhere. And it's like, even when we went to Dartmouth, I remember not seeing any other like people of color. None? Other than the people that we went with from the high school. Wow. You know, and I'm, I'm sure that there were a few, but they weren't visible. Few and far between, yeah. yeah. So 
I, I think right. that would have been a shell shock, but also it's a, it's a thing of like, it's not like taking somebody who was like in the hood for his whole life. It's like, I was in Queens and then I was in right. Harlem. But so it, it, it would have been less a class shock yeah. than a culture shock. Yeah, I mean, it, it would have been different. Um, Do you have any regrets about that? Now, yes that, now no. that Now that you're like 15 years removed from that? Yes and no. I mean, the thing is, is like, I think if I would have went to Dartmouth, that I would have gotten a great education. I would have done amazing things, but I don't know if I would really be happy. Mm, I you understand, know? yes. I, I feel like I would have been on a path that would have been a successful path, but not necessarily a happy path. So you know? where, did, where did you end up going to college? Oh, I went to NJIT. What's, what's NJIT? The New Jersey Institute of Technology. Okay. Had a full scholarship for, uh, for math. Math. Whoa, yeah, yo, you could do math, math, M-A-F. M-A-F, math, M-A-F-F, another F. <laughs> I remembered uh, I had to take a take an eight-hour test for it. Um, I got the scholarship, and um, um, it was great. It was great, you know, dropped out of that school. Then, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then I went to Hunter, graduated from Hunter, creative hey, no, writing. Nothing, nothing wrong with Hunter. No, Hun I love Hunter. I shouting mean, out Hunter. Shouting man. out Hunter. Like, when I make it, I want to be one of the people who has like their picture on the train, you know, when you're mm, like, yes. Hunter alone. Like, I just want to be like, yeah, I went to Hunter. So when you were at Hunter, uh -huh. you said you majored in creative writing? Yeah, creative So writing. what made you decide to do that? Um, well, so I was at, I was at NJIT. Uh, I was doing math because I was really good at math, but I didn't enjoy it. And I realized that I couldn't do anything that I didn't enjoy. So I remember leaving NJIT and I said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna do something that I love, which was writing. Uh, in high school, I got a, uh, a yearbook signing from uh, Andrew Garner, who was my uh, English teacher, and he wrote this this like poem and, and stuck it to my yearbook, saying that like I might write for The Simpsons one day because like I just had like so many amazing things that I would write about, and I was the only one who cared about writing. And so I said to myself, you know what? My grandfather on my dad's side was a carpenter, and he didn't learn how to make tables. He learned how to manipulate wood. So in that same vein, I know I want to do something with writing. I don't know what it's going to be, but I, want it, but I know I need to learn how to write better. I thought I was going to be a journalist, but I was like, oh, let me do creative writing. Because I thought writing was writing is writing is writing, which it isn't. So I went to school for creative writing, and um, I was part of the Thomas Hunter Honors Program. I graduated with one of their uh, like bachelor honors degrees. So I did that. And um, yeah, creative writing, it was, it was, it was the best. It was so the best. So what was the first job that you had after you graduated? Uh, first job that I had, it, so I was working at, I put myself through school by working at Hunter in the Career Development Services. And then right before leaving, uh, I did an internship at MTV. And then right when I graduated, I got a job at MTV doing, uh, uh, not, not at MTV, I started working at uh, Sling doing like editorial online production stuff. But I also did some like uh, hip hop journalism on the side. And I was like a music editor for like the small uh, oh, wow. magazine called Exclusive. Shout out to uh, Louis Cologne and all them. Um, and I was going around doing a lot of hip hop, hip hop shows and, 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 uh, and one of, okay, one of, it's not, not a regret, but it's a thing that like, I'll always remember, is I remember being a hip-hop editor of Kick Exclusive and going and, and telling the publisher, I was like, listen, I know you want to give the cover to this, to this Lupe fiasco. I know he's big right now, whatever, whatever. But there's this kid, Drake, from Toronto. He's so good, right? And this was before he was signing like Cash Money and all that stuff. I spoke to, uh, I spoke to his manager. Like, we, we were, he was like, hey, we'll do it if he gets the cover. And I was like, no problem, because I believed in him. And they said no. 
And so now every time Drake does something, I'm like, I I knew it the whole time. I'm like, I freaking oh knew it. It's so, just one of those things where like, so I you 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 could have discovered Drake. Yeah, it's not even like I discovered, discovered Drake, him, but, but, but like I knew it was just like. He had a song with Trey Songs, and it was a That's good, fun song. And I was like, "Hey, this guy is gonna be the next guy." And I couldn't champion him, but but it also made me realize it was like, "Hey, I need to believe." in myself and that's something that's like a thing that comes comes up again and again and again and again in my life of like no you just need to double down like go all in or don't do it at all yeah so uh that's new york yeah so so uh so i guess that's where we're at okay so boom i was working at sling and then um i had got laid off but then i booked a pilot for mtv then i uh shot a television commercial so this is fairly recent within the last like six seven years yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, probably not, it's like three or so, well, yeah. You, you could do the math in your head, right? Yeah, I'm doing the math in my head, yeah, yeah I'm doing like, oh, my God, he's, he's got his shoes off, he's using his toes. No, he's not, yeah, no, no, he's not. No, I'm just not. counting, counting, this little picky. No, here. no, he's not, he's so yeah, not I think, I think that was a 2000, might have been 2015. Oh, okay, so that's yeah. real recent. Yeah, pretty recent, yeah. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and since then, it's just been like, it's just been all comedy. It's, it's, it's been a great, or all artistry. Um, at, when did you start having an interest in doing stand-up as an art and performing, and how did you get into it? Okay, well, the first time, I think the first time I performed stand-up was in the fifth grade with a friend of mine, Denver Thompson. We went out as a duo. We wrote a set. Oh, this, so this is back in Rosedale? This is back in Rosedale. It was great. Um, oh, everybody wow. thought it was great, and I just didn't know how to, like, pursue it and make it into a thing. Um, and then I stopped, I stopped doing it. Um, I still had comedy. You know, at Dartmouth, I, I, you know, I still had some comedy. Um, even when I was at Hunter, I had like a blog on MySpace. So, so stand-up was something that you went in, like you dabbled in here and there over the course of like, I'm going to say 20 years, yeah, see, but see, less I don't than even 20 would, years, I would say, 15 years. I keep forgetting I, how old you are. Well, well, uh, that's great. Uh, <laughs> oh, stop. Oh, stop. Uh, I, it, because I don't want to say that I was thinking about stand-up through that whole time. Because I remember in the fifth grade, I did it. And I loved it, but I didn't know how to continue doing it, right? Well, and then I always had I always had that artistry about me of like writing and creating. But it's like, growing up in New York City, like my mom, my dad, everybody at that time, especially when you're when you're uh, growing up in the '80s, '90s, was go to college, get a job. Well, yeah, I mean that's the whole. I mean, was was your dad born in Jamaica or here? Jamaica. Okay, no, that's that's the whole first gen thing. Yeah. Because if your parent is an immigrant, no yeah. matter what country they come from, they they're going to be like, you go to college and you mm. make money. No, I want to be an artist. Depending on the culture, whack, yeah. go cotazo, yeah. yeah. go to your rooms. Yes. No, yes. you're going to make money because yes. art is doesn't is when. Your parent is an immigrant. Art is not a viable career choice because they don't see the money. Yeah, and then and then then that's my dad's side. On my mom's side, it's it's a very, um, you know, keep to yourself, mind your business because you're growing up uh, uh, as a person of color in America, and so you don't want to draw attention to yourself. You don't want to like have anybody like in your business or whatever. So it's like, hey. Just do, just don't make, don't start any trouble. Just do what you gotta do. Get in there and get out. So it's like those two different things of yeah. like the immigrant father of saying, hey, hey, you better learn something. Go to college, get a job, and just be a cog in a machine. And and my mom is like, yeah, be a cog, but don't be too squeaky. Just do what you have to oh, do man. and get by. So it's that, like that is a, a lot. That's a that's a messed up message that yeah. for a child to absorb. 
Yeah. I, it just it just is. But but it's also the thing of like ethnicity, right? And the the background of the parents. So like like when I'm like around the white homies and I talk to them about what they do, I'm like, man, you just wanted to do that and your parents just like encouraged that and allowed you to fail. You know what I mean? Where it's like growing up as a person of color, we're not really a lot, we don't, we're not given the luxury of failure. No, it's, and if they do give you that one chance, if you don't make it that one chance, that's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. And just, they're like, okay, we let you do it. And you failed. We, they're and like, we let you do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, so it's, it, it, it's, it's a lot of that. And also not even knowing how to, to get things done. And I mean, and it's something like now within, I guess, like these three, these last three years of like being, you know, a professional artist. And I say artist now because I used to just say stand-up comedian, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I realized I do so much mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but it's like understanding like, okay, I need, it was like, okay, what do other artists have? I was like, okay, well, let me start from square zero, right? I need, if I need an agent, what, what do I do, right? I mean, there's an internet now. There wasn't an internet before. I can Google agencies. Right. I can self. I can self submit. I might not hear anything back, but I can do the 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 the, the first step of trying to trying to get that done. It's it, it's also the same thing too of like when you want to talk about just being an artist of color of like the sense of community, right? Because it's like if you're if 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 you're let's just say if you're if you're an artist of color, right? No matter what, you're representing the community. If you're in America, you're representing the community, right? right? So uh, I, I'll say this, for instance, uh, Jordan Peele from Key and Peele, right? He's on Key and Peele, and a lot of black people are like, man, I don't like this show. I don't like that show. That's not for me. Whatever, whatever, right? But he has a show with his friend on Comedy Central. Oh, that's not for me. That's not for me. They want nothing to do with him. He puts out a movie, Keanu. They want nothing to do with him. They want nothing Keanu to do with him. Keanu with the cat. Yeah. I love yeah, that it's movie. It's a great movie, but like people didn't like embrace it. And then he comes out with Get Out, which is a movie that, that you know, it's great. He got best original uh, screenplay. Mm-hmm. It was the first time. Oscar. Of, of like, you know, and now... It, it, it's like because that movie, people are like, yeah, that's that, yeah, he did that for us. He did that for us. It was like, no, everything that he did was for, was us. for us. And yeah. I think what happens is like, we're gonna get to this point, and I think this is part of like my my personal mission of like, there is not one. The the thing that people of color that we all share is we share an experience of being a being a person of color in America, right? That doesn't mean that it's the same for everyone. Like one of my best friends, Rojo Perez, really funny comedian, first Puerto Rican comedian to ever be on Conan, to do late night on Conan. He is Puerto Rican and, ha- and people sometimes don't look at him as a Puerto Rican. You know what I mean? And he's like, no, he grew up in Puerto Rico. You know what I mean? Like he, 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 he went to college in, in Florida, he lives in New York, but his Puerto Rican experience is different from some other friends I have who grew up in the Bronx. Puerto Rican, you know what I mean? But they might look at him and be like, man, you're not Puerto Rican. And vice versa. And vice versa, you know what yeah, I mean? And it's yeah. just that thing, it was like, no, we all are Puerto Rican, but the beauty is is the, the differences of how, how we came up and what, what being Puerto Rican or what mean, what does it mean to be this person of color? You know what I mean? It's like, what does black mean for me? Like people would tell me like, oh, you ain't black, you ain't black. But I didn't hear that until I went to high school where it was like predominantly black, it was all black and Spanish. Like, yo, you ain't black because I wasn't like the rest of those guys. Right. But I'm you're like, not black because you speak well. You're not yeah. black because you can do math. Yeah. You're not back black because you're not wearing your pants under your ass. Yeah. You, you would hear all these things, but it was I like. I don't know. Are you wearing your pants uh, under your ass? Oh, no, no, no. no, 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 no I'm good. I'm good. I got my belt. I'm good. But it's like, but the thing is, like, you grow up in, like, growing up in Queens, it's like, I never had my blackness questioned. I was always Mike, and I always knew that I'm Mike and I am black. Right. But you go someplace else and you got to prove it all over again. Yeah. 
every time you go someplace different, you got to prove it and prove yeah. it and prove but, it. And you yeah. know what? And then you can understand why somebody says, you know what? I'm tired of proving this shit. I'm just getting off. Yeah. And then they get off the train. Yeah. And, but there's, but I'm saying like, and that's all, all the time. I think if you're a person of color, you have to always prove that you're part of that community where if you're not a person of color, you never have to you prove could, it. You're part of the community by default. By default. It's the fault. Yeah. It's the fault. By default. But, but I think now the default is starting to, to change. I think the default oh, yeah. is starting to widen. It's starting yeah. to, to, to open up. Yeah, well, because I think because of the internet, I think the, uh, the, the music, I think uh, uh, hip hop, uh, uh, cartoons, movies, all these things are kind of like bridging everyone together. So it's like, it's cool to like the same yeah. things. Like I remember I was at, like, you know, I'm talking about two different colleges I went to, three actually, no, uh, two different colleges I went to, three opportunities where it's like, I had a full scholarship in, in French. You know what I mean? I had a full scholarship in, in, in math. You know, it's like, I was, a, I was a nerd and that wasn't the cool thing. You know what I mean? Mm. And it's like, so socially, I'm at school, I'm like, man, I don't, I'm like, oh man, I got the scholarship, whatever, right? My parents are happy, but they also were like, I hope you get a scholarship because we don't know how we're going to pay for school. You know what I mean? So yep. it's like that whole time you have that pressure of I have to, like, I have to be the best of the best of the best because if I can't, I'm screwed. One thing I wanted, I wanted to get back to yeah. is um, you, you, I want to know how you got into stand-up because when I met you at Word Up mm -hmm. in, I'm going to say, 2012, 13, 12, okay. yeah, you were already doing it. And then you ran a room for a really long time. Yeah, I've, I've, I, I ran a bunch of rooms. I didn't know what I was doing. I think I might be done with run, running rooms for a little bit. But um, So I, when I started, took a class at Caroline's because I was like, okay, it's like school. You want to learn how to do something. I learned how to do creative writing. I want to learn how to, you know, tell jokes or whatever. So I go to this comedy class at Caroline's. They didn't teach me how to write a joke, but it did have a good community of people who were all trying to do stand-up comedy. Now, we all were trying to do stand-up comedy for different reasons. Some people were just like, hey, I'm just scared of public speaking. Some people were like, oh, I, would, I always wanted to do it or whatever. Um, and I was like, oh, I'm doing it. Like, this is the first time I'm in school when I know exactly what I want to do. Oh, you know what isn't I mean? that a great feeling? Yeah, it's a great feeling. But even at my first class, I remember going and still being kind of like afraid of my myself, afraid of the greatness, until I saw uh, a friend of mine, Phil Gdansky, he did a set that was so funny that it made me mad. It was so funny, it pissed me off because it was funnier than my set. <laughs> and so I went home and I, and I started writing jokes and I came back and killed him. And, the next, and I remember after that class, he spoke, he was like, oh, I'm so mad at you. I was like, I was like oh, because I was mad at you last class. And it was one of those things where it was like, okay, now I have, it was like, oh, I, it was the first time it was like, I was openly competitive with someone else. And it was like, and we were making each other better. That's, you know that's I mean? a good friendship when yeah. you make each other better. Yeah. It's like training for the marathon. You want to be training with somebody who's just a bit faster than you, mm -hmm. so you have to keep the, I need to up keep to up. them. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but, but that person, once he, that you catch up to them, they got to be going they even go faster. faster than me. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I was, you know, I did a lot of bringers. You know, I would, I would do bringers oh, all the time. And I, oh, I, I mean, I did, I did my share of bringers. Like, they would tell you you needed to have. 10, 15 people to and get a free they, tape. And then they pay like, yeah, and then they have to pay $10 to get in, yeah. or sometimes two $5, drinks. and then two drinks. So yeah. your friends who probably have no money are mm. spending at least $40 so you could get a tape. Yeah, well, I mean, but that's the thing. Like, I was bringing, I brought like, I think over my bringer time, like over 100 people to Carolyn. My first show, I brought like 30. 
You know, that's good. And, and oh, they must have been like, oh. Yeah, and they were like, oh, we'll get you on this show, whatever. And so I'm just doing all these different shows, but it was like, they just wanted my money. They didn't care about me as that's an true. artist. And and that's and I started and like looking back, I understand it. But I was like, oh, you don't care about me as an artist. And then um, I did. I started doing bringers for uh, for uh, another pair of comics who were who were cool because they would say, okay, well, we'll give you. They were like, we'll give you, you know, a portion of like the ticket sales. So it was like if. It, it was like a, a 20 or 30% if you made, if you brought over a certain amount. So I remember one time I did the show and he gave me like a hundred or something dollars or whatever. And I was like, oh shit, you know what I mean? It, but it was also like a standing room only show and a lot of these people came for me. And then after that, I was kind of like, why am I, if I'm bringing all these people, why am I bringing it to them? Like, I can just do it myself. Is this when you started Comedy Outliers? Um, this was like a year before, because a year, because I think that year I met this dude, Brandon Collins, and um, we just had like a conversation because he's a, he's a black guy, grew up in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, talked about like, you know, what it means to be a quote unquote black comic, how, how do we feel about things, and just we both said, hey, we both believe in each other, let's start this. Um, we just ended it uh, on... I just always thought that was oh, a February. great name, Comedy, Comedy Outliers. Outliers. Yeah, that was the thing. He, he, uh, he. I mean, we still have the brain. We still have our podcast, Comedy Outliers podcast on iTunes. And you, you ran that uh, show for how long? Six, All, years. six years. Six years. Yeah, it was different. Different rooms. Uh, we, yeah, we did. I mean, it was usually the same room. We we had the same room for about two years, and then the venue closed, and so uh. we had to start moving around. So we, I mean, we did some really great shows. We did some shows that. Uh, on a yacht for Yelp. It was making like, it was really like a networking opportunity for us because like that show led us to Webster Hall. That show led us to doing more things. But also with all that production I was doing because I was doing that, I had a show with uh, Molly Austin, Rojo and Shaq called Big Pony Show. Um, I had, uh, I was hosting the mic every week. I was uh, like, I was, I've done so much as a New York City artist. So you were busy comedian. upon busy upon busy. Yeah. And then and working at full time. And then you hit a brick wall. Yeah. Okay. So I did all that stuff, and this, and I, I hit, I hit a small version of the brick wall where I was just like, nothing is going on. Around the time I was getting laid off, where it was like, why are all these people who started after me so far ahead of me? You know what I mean? Like they're not even from New York, or whatever. Or some of them, I'm like, they're not even as funny as me. Like what, what, like, what is it? What's wrong with me? What am I not doing? And maybe I'm not really full force throwing myself into this. You know what I mean? Maybe I'm still scared. So when that uh, when the layoff came, it was kind of a blessing in disguise because I don't think I would have ever left that job if I didn't get laid off. I don't think I would have ever left. You know, I think it would have been a nice, comfortable thing, and comedy would still have been something that I would be doing as a hobby because the entire life I knew was work, work, and you get paid for your work. Mm. It wasn't until I started getting paid for uh, performing where I was like, okay, so now I can't just do any random old thing. Like, my time is now very important to me. And then um, I also, and like things were going good, and then, but money-wise was like tough, because I was like, man, I don't know where the fuck I'm gonna get any, I don't know where I'm gonna get anything from. I don't know where I'm gonna get this money from. I, I don't know what's going on. It's hustling all the time. Yeah, it's hustling. It, it can wear at your spirit. It wear, yeah, because it, but it also was like like I had I had money like saved up at like 401k stuff. You know what I mean? Like I, I I thought I had like a little something, which I did, but it's still like this needs to to, to work. Like I'm putting everything. It's like it's kind of like this is this has to either work or it's not working. And I'm and the universe is saying don't do it. And I will just say. You know, fine, I won't do it. I got this this email that I didn't like. I didn't get this uh, this gig that I wanted, 
and I was just like in a rut. I like had, I had my whole breakdown. I was just like, what's going on? I just like lost all of my shit. I was, I just felt, I just felt like what's going on? You know what I mean? It, 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 it hit me in a point where it was just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know. I should just quit everything. Like, I'm just not happy. Because it was just like, that was like the, the straw that broke the camel's back. You mm. know what I mean? Like, I'm ha I have all this weight and this one little straw just hit me and I was like, that's it. And I remember that uh, that night I was, I was in the bathroom. I was just like crying on the floor uh, in, in darkness. And then, I, and, and then uh, my, my girl's like, she's like, you're all right. And I'm like, I'm, I'm just like, I'm like, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm just like, I'm, I'm just bawling, right? And then I go into the room to her and I just cry, cry on her lap because I was just so messed up and I've never like shown anybody that vulnerability before and um, I kind of like made it through the night but I remember my, uh, I remember before my, my a, fr a few friends of mine, they had, they checked themselves into a hospital and they like bounced back from it. So the next morning I got up and I was like, hey, so I was like, I'm, I just want to check myself into a hospital. I don't know how to do it. I'm going to ask my friend how to do it. So I asked my friend, hit him up. He was like, great, this is what you do. And that was an experience for me because uh, for those who don't know, when you go into a mental hospital or to a hospital and check yourself in for like a uh, mental eval, it's like you give up, you give them your phone, you give them everything. You know, you take off your shoes, you take off your belt, like, you know what I mean? And it's like you go into this, you go into this, uh, this area of the hospital where you can't get out unless they let you get out. You know, unless they discharge you, basically. And so I'm, I'm, I'm in there, and I'm, like, looking around at everybody else, and I'm like, man, I, like, I know I got my issues of, like, I knew I had my, like, my depression or whatever. And it turns out I did, ha I did have a, or do have, uh, what's it, mixed mood anxiety and depression disorder. So, uh, so at that time, it's like when I had my breakdown, I had the highest level of depression I would, I've ever had and the highest level of anxiety I ever had, and that, like, that intersection was like crushing. So, uh, so I, uh, so I'm in, I'm in a hospital, and I'm just like, man, there's people who are like schizophrenic in there. There's all this. I'm sharing a room with like 12 dudes. It was just like a lot, and I was just like, I don't want to be in here. You know what I mean? Well, you're like, I'm not that crazy. Yeah, a part of me was like, I'm not that crazy. <laughs> I'm not that crazy. Yeah, I'm not but it's, but it's also like some people are just better at balancing things. It's like some people are just stronger than other people. It's not saying that 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 like if you can lift. If you can lift a car for your son and I can't, that doesn't mean that I'm weak. It just means that you're stronger than me. Everybody has a different breaking point. Everybody, everybody has a different everybody one. Everybody has yeah. a different breaking point. Yeah. There, there, are, there are times where I know that I've gone to a line mm -hmm. and I felt like I could not function anymore. And if I crossed that line, I would not have to function anymore. Yeah. And then yeah. I had to ask myself, do you want to cross the line? Yeah. And by the grace of El Senor, I always said I'm not crossing yeah. the line. Yeah. But who knows when, when you, what is going to get you to that point yeah. where it's easier to not function than to function. Well, well, the, well, the and thi that's, yeah, the, it's, it's scary. That is it's frightening. Scary. The, I think the thing is too, like with mental health, cause like that's a, that's the thing that talk, we don't talk about. We don't nope, talk about, nope, um, nope, nope, nope. Stigma, stigma. Yeah. Like I talked at a, I talked at a, at a private school, uh, last month one of the things i was trying to convey to them is that like for me when i was at my lowest point i didn't see any other option you know what i mean like i called the uh suicide hotline and i was speaking and i'm like because i was like i i didn't see any other option oh. right and and i think the thing is especially for uh for 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 people of color or anybody really because that wasn't like my first suicidal like attempt or whatever but it's like you it wasn't no 
you you think that I don't want to hurt myself. I just I just right. don't want to do. I just don't want to live anymore. I don't want right. to hurt myself. Like right. it was like if there was a button or a switch. Yeah. Like if it was if it was easy enough. And I think and I think that's the thing too. It's like because you look at that line of like of of when someone's like uh, suicidal or whatever, and you like kind of get to that to that edge of like I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to live anymore. You don't know what's on the other side of whatever. But in order to get there, you gotta you gotta do something. And I knew for me there was a little bit of, but what if, you know what I mean? And I didn't know what that what if, what did that happen? When you think that there's no more options, that's when I think that you yeah. go suicidal. So for me, it was like, it was like, there has to be another option. You know what I mean? There, ha there has to be something. And um, that's what I was telling the, the kids at the school. I was like, listen, man, it, there's, sometimes you think that there's no other option but there's always another option. It's not, it's not always gonna be, okay, well, I can just end it all. It's like, no, you can, there is a version of this where you get, where better things happen. And then the next stop, the, ne the next phase is once you realize and accept that better things can happen, it's gonna be a lot of work on you, but you have to say, okay, you, you're at this one point, right? You're at that low point, but you wanna go in that upward direction. So what's the next, spot on your journey. How do you get from that point you're at right now to that upward arrow? How do you get, how do you, how do you keep going? How did you get to that point? Did you have therapy? Did you get help or counseling yeah, when I you did. were in the I hospital? I got, I got, I got counseling. How long did you stay in the hospital for? Uh, not long, like, like 24 hours, 28 hours. Um, they, they sent me over to counselor, a counselor, okay. a counselor at Queen Center, which is dope. Um, so they didn't just say bye? Yeah, they didn't say bye. Bye, figure it out. Um, but uh, it's, what, what, what it was for me is that like, I had to really take stock of a lot of things. Um, and I think it, it, it was, it's probably easier for me because like I've always felt that I, I could do anything, but I needed to be able to do it, right? Or needed to feel like I can do it. Um, I, need to, I needed to accept that, hey, the road is going to be hard. You know what I mean? It's like, you're like, oh, it's so hard. Yeah, like, yeah, it is hard. But yeah, it's supposed to be hard. And it's supposed and, and the it's supposed to be this hard because you want to do so many great things. If and you if didn't it was want it, easy, anybody could do and it. And anybody could do it. But what you're gonna do, no one else is gonna be able to do. So you have to go through this so you can do the thing that you need to do. And a lot of people I feel that that are suicidal, who are depressed, whatever, they feel that people don't either understand them or don't get them and they're like, what's wrong with me? Instead of saying like and, and that's something that I do like about like this generation where it's like now, instead of saying, like, what's wrong with me, it's like, what makes me unique? I think all of us are, who are all depressed people who have this art, we're like, this is how we see the world. So that be through storytelling, through comedy, through visual arts, through movies, whatever. This is what we see. Everybody else sees, it, sees the world one way, and we all see the world differently, and we all appreciate each other because we all say, hey, I see the world differently, too. How do you see it? How do you see it? How do you see it? Did you have the support of your girl and your family and your friends? Yeah. Through it? Yeah. You, I mean, I, it, took a, it took, well, it took, it took a thing because when I, when I checked myself in, I just told her, and I like I, I was hosting a comedy show that night, and I was like, hey, I was like, hey, I'm not gonna be able to, you know, I got I got to take care of something. Like I didn't even tell people I was going. And well, that's not exactly the thing that you're gonna tell people I right know. away until you know how it's gonna turn out. Yeah, but when I got out, it was like some of the word got out, you know, quote unquote, and it was like you see all these people kind of like reaching out and coming over and all these things, and then it's uh, what, what people don't don't kind of discuss is like the other side of it is a weight in itself. Because when you get out the hospital, it's always like, okay, is he gonna be all right? 
and also can I deal can I emotionally be ready for if this was going to happen you know what I mean like like people like I know like uh, like my girl's kind of like well he didn't kill himself but what if he feels like that again like can I be able to deal with that you know what I mean it's it's and also for me it's like one of the reasons that I stopped uh, like that that was such such a breaking point for me is because I had a friend I had a friend and his fiance my best friend and his fiance were murdered in 2010 and he was the last person to like kind of talk me off the ledge of like don't you like yo don't you know what I mean he was like if he said don't he said don't he said don't ever he said if you kill yourself I won't be your friend right and I don't know why that was like the last thing I needed to hear but I was like okay yeah, I'm not gonna kill myself because I, I still want you to be my friend. Like that doesn't make any logical sense, but it made all the man logic sense in the world. Where like he was like, I'm not gonna, not like I'm not gonna mourn you, but like you do that, you you might think that people are gonna be like, oh Mike, he's gonna be like, man, I told him, and I wouldn't want that energy. I guess that that for me, and I think he knew that, and that's why he said that. So after he passed, I was like, okay, that's my promise to him. So even when I was at my lowest point, I still had that thing of like, oh, I can't do that for him. But coming out of it. It was like, I realized it's like, no, I, I'm, I'm living for him, but I'm also living for me because there's so much shit that I want to do. Sometimes we feel like we don't like, like, and I think it's artists and people who are depressed or whatever. It's like, we don't know why, why we're like, why are we doing this shit? And, and it's just like, you gotta, you gotta think about like, oh, why and what do I want to do? And sometimes you gotta change that into anger. That sadness, you gotta kind of change that into anger. And that anger, you change that into motivation. Be like, oh, this is what and I want to do. the motivation becomes action. Yes. So what tools have you learned now to, that, that you are taking with you going forward? Like, how is Mike now different than Mike before? Uh, the Mike now, I feel, is very... Is very is, is less anxious thanks to the the Zoloft. Um, I'm I'm more open to talking about uh, mental health and everything like that because I, that was something I never would talk about really because there would be that 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 fear of oh you know what's wrong with him or whatever. But now I'm just like I'm just talking about it because now it's like oh that is part of who I am so I'm, I can't like shy away from it. I was telling my boy I was like okay that that thing of like him growing up being in a closet and like. I was like, it's such a great thing that you were in a class and you were able to come out and it was like, this is who I am. And I was like, and I was like, and me growing up, I had this like depressive mental health thing that I that nobody knew about. And it was like, I feel like I just came out. Like I'm just, you know what I mean? Like of of like that mental health shell. Like, oh, I got issues, it's cool. We all do. Some of y'all might not admit it, but we got, you know what I mean? It's like, and it's like, oh, I feel like I'm living my best life now. But one of the tools is uh taking like really, really working and really just understanding that like I am an artist, and it took it took a, a while to kind of like understand that because you know I am uh, working on trying to get this uh, this pilot sold. Yeah, I am so working on trying to get uh, other things going well, let, on. Let's talk about that. What okay. what projects do you have coming up? So I'm working on the show called Super Video Bros with Dylan Stevenson. That's a monthly show that we'll be doing at uh, Union Hall. It's really fun. It's kind of like a uh, like a uh, mystery science theater meets video music box. Like we, uh, we. That sounds we, fun. Uh, yeah, it's really fun. Um, there's this monthly show called the Feel Good Show. I'm doing with Sam Gritner. He was the he was the guy who actually uh, talked to me through going to the hospital and whatnot. And he's he's an amazing, phenomenal comedian. He's great. But all the proceeds from every show go to a New York based charity. So. Um, so yeah, I don't know what, which one by the time this comes out, but every time it's going to be a different New York-based charity. Uh, and I got some other projects. There's a podcast that I'm working on, um, and I don't know what else to say about it, but 
That's tomorrow. great. So hopefully, All right. hopefully Woo-hoo. it goes. Yeah, let's, let's so see what happens. if people want to find out about more Anything? about your fabulousness and where you're going yeah. to be appearing, where can they find you? Yo, Mike. Brown. Y O M I K E B R O W N. All your social medias, or you can check my website, ohthatmikebrown.com. And um, yeah, just just uh, whatever. <laughs> I'm gonna like hit me up, and sometimes like hit, him hit up. me up, and hit I don't, him up, hit him up, hit, well, up. hit, hit him, hit him up for good stuff. Hit no, so no. um, I always ask this in in, in closing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you've answered this question multiple times, but mm-hmm. we're going to wrap it okay. all up in, in like two or three sentences. Okay. If you had one thing to say to the child who has the audacity to dare to be different, to dare to dream, and it seems like all the odds are against them achieving that dream, what would you tell that child? I would tell them, I would tell that person listening right now that they can do anything. But I've heard that I can do anything from all the people I've looked up to, and I didn't believe them until I got out the hospital. So I can't tell you that you can do anything. You you literally have the power. And if you don't think that you have the power, you might have to look deeper to find it. But you do. We We all do going to be a hard road. It might be easy for some of y'all, but it's a hard road. Do it because we need you. We need artists, especially New York-based artists. We need you. Please, please, please continue to be artists. Continue to rep New York City. Don't let anybody take take the joy away. Don't let it get gentrified out of here. And if you're feeling depressed or whatever like that, hey, get into your art. Look at some New York artists. New York all day. NYC every day. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh my Brown. I've had people make me laugh, 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 but you made me cry and laugh. Oh my God. You are a lovely, lovely, lovely human, Mr. Brown. And if you go over that edge, you're going to find my fist there. No, my foot. My, 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 my size seven foot going to kick you in your culito. No, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not right. going. I got a lot to do. Thank you so much for being on Fish Out of Agua. Thank you for having Hug me. Hug on the air. Hug on the air. Hug on the air. Thank you so much. Thank we you. Always Thank you. end with a hug on the air. Woohoo! Well, dedicate this one to all Jamaicans who live in London, coming from King Yellow Man. Do you understand? London cool, repeat again tell it to them. London cool, repeat again tell it to them. London cool, repeat again tell it to them. To London cool, I never get a woman. White woman push them dog in a bram, dog and post. A weary and coat, na fi love, na fi take it for a joke. London cool, repeat again tell it to them. London cool. Get a little them car, don't in Jamaica, you know a summer, but in a London, a fear winter, every man in me get up with windbreaker, me no one catch you more now. London cool, repeat again, tell it to them, London cool, repeat again, tell it to them, London cool, repeat again, tell it to them car, Jamaica pass your one year, yo, London pass your one year, yo. Richland Passy, I want to hear you. Say Birmingham Passy, I want to hear you. Jamaica nice. 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 Give me no star.
I would have loved to live a land and live white people life. Jive BMW and a jive views right. Every morning me get up, I walk on ice. But me prefer Jamaica to eat a paradise. Jamaica nice, Jamaica nice, Jamaica nice, Jamaica nice. Jamaica nice, Jamaica nice, take me home. Country road to the place. I belong in Jamaica, that's where I'm from, take me home, country road, London cool, repeat again, tell it to them, London cool, repeat again, tell it to them, London cool, repeat again, tell it to them, car, down in Jamaica, you know a summer, but in a London, Happy winter, every man in me get up with windbreaker. Me no want catch new mona. London cool, repeat again, tell it to them. London cool, repeat again, tell it to them. Car, Jamaica pass a one year yo. Liverpool pass a one year yo. Manchester pass a one year yo. Miss London pass a one year yo. Bridgestone pass a one year yo. Take me home. Country road to the place I belong in Jamaica. That's where I'm from. Take me home, country road. Whoa, wait, whoa. Jamaica nice, Jamaica nice, Jamaica nice, Jamaica nice, Jamaica nice, Jamaica nice. Me come a London to spend a little time. Me drink vodka, expensive wine. Me sight the pretty girl, them a walk and a wine. But Jamaica it's still for me mind. Said that me long for the golden sunshine. Jamaica nice, Jamaica nice, Jamaica nice, Jamaica nice. Jamaica nice, Jamaica nice, London cool. Repeat again, tell it to them, London cool. Repeat again, tell it to them, take me home. Country road to the place I belong in Jamaica. That's where I'm from. Take me home. Country road. London cool, Ribita get a little them London cool, Ribita get a little them London cool. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. You just heard Jamaica Nice, Take Me Home Country Roads by Yellow Man from his King Yellow Man album in 1984. And it included a cover of John Denver's Take Me Home Country Roads because after all, this is the collaboration episode. Well, that's our show, kids. You've been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And if you want to support living artists, donate to us. Just go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash donate and do what it says. We're going to close with uh, however much we can fit in of a Kronos Quartet song that's a cover of Jimi Hendrix's Purple Haze. So tune in for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll see you next week. Woohoo!